least the main speaker. But that's okay. I don't have, I'm not sensitive. Giving this talk, which thank God I'm not, I would say that if of any area of fiction that gives the lie to those who would separate us into men and women or feminist writers or male writers and all that, certainly suspense fiction and mystery fiction gives the lie to it because some of our great suspense and mystery and thriller writers are female by gender, but they write like hell by that. That is a compliment. They are hellishly good writers, and we have a hellishly good writer with us today. She has created what is soon to become, I think, a memorable series starring this female detective. There are a number of female detectives now. I think from the bit I've read so far, uh, the author's name, in, not incidentally, is Sue Grafton, who is going to speak to you shortly. Um, where was I? God, I'm losing track. Yes, the line. Thank you. So we have some fans here already. Sue Grafton has created a female detective. The thing that sticks in my mind about her is in a review, a wonderful review that's in your packet about the four o'clock speakers. And I'd like just to quote from this. Meet Kinsey Milhone, private investigator, 32 years old. She has been married twice, divorced twice, and has no kids, no pets, no houseplants. Her 15-square-foot apartment in Santa Teresa, I think read Santa Barbara, right? Yes. <laughs> California is made of wholly artificial materials, and her 68 VW is crammed with junk. She jogs, drinks Chablis, and stays in sleazy motels because she's cheap. So far, she sounds like someone I'd like to know. Being female, she's discovered, has its occupational hazards. Men are the only suitable candidates for surveillance work, notes Milhone, because they can sit in a parked car and pee discreetly into a tennis ball can, thus avoiding unnecessary absences. Anybody who can come up with lines like that deserves a wide audience, and I hope she gets one. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Sue Grafton. I'm going to have to learn how to do this. Okay. I have never before spoken to quite so many chairs. It's a little bit alarming. Um, I did not write A.S. for Alice. I don't even know Alice. The word is alibi. Um, in thinking about how I wanted to structure this, I tried to come up with some notion of what might be most productive for you. And I've decided to consider myself a mystery genre recruiter. They're the people in the world who will recruit your talents and abilities for IBM and for Dow Chemical and for the CIA, and I am here to persuade you of the delights of doing the mystery. I myself got into it about six or seven years ago, primarily because in writing for the film business, I kept being told that I could do character well, but that I could not do plot. And I finally got so frosted by that that I decided I would learn to do plot. And I further decided that the writing form in which plot was paramount was in fact the detective novel. And that if I could conquer that, perhaps I could silence my critics. In uh, Newsweek magazine in April of this year, they did a long article about mystery writers, primarily men, 
There was one woman mentioned once. However, we don't, we don't want to carp about that at this point. Uh, I'd like to quote a little bit from that article because I think it had many pertinent things to say about the mystery form. This was a quote from Edmund Wilson, a very distinguished critic whose name I'm sure you recognize. He said, the reading of detective stories is simply a kind of vice that for silliness and minor harmfulness ranks somewhere between smoking and crossword puzzles. However, within a month he was forced to admit that he had soon gotten hooked by them himself and began to put himself to sleep at night reading Sherlock Holmes. Apparently, since Edgar Allan Poe's Murders of the Rue Morgue in 1841, the genre has enjoyed a popularity unmatched by that of any form of literature worthy of the name. Uh, Newsweek also says, thrillers have offered their readers a double assurance. They convince us that our lives are not nearly as drab and humdrum as we fear. They convince us that mysteries lurk under every surface and that we have a perfect right to be paranoid. At the same time, thrillers assuage the very anxieties that they arouse, proving, if only on paper, that the truth will be known in the end, justice achieved and order restored. A good thriller is like a carefully executed jailbreak. You could admire the planning that went into it. You can even call it a criticism of the penitentiary. But above everything else, it's an escape to freedom. One word of warning, I think we should always keep in mind the profound differences between murder mysteries and homicide in the real world. Real murder is grotesque, it is brutal, it is pointless, and it is nothing we would care to celebrate. And I have at home a $70 book called The Pathology of Homicide, and when I lose track of what I'm really discussing, I stop and leaf through that. Uh, the photographs of the dead and dismembered is enough to remind me that what I am doing is not connected to that, though I need to be an expert on those matters. Fictional homicide, however, is a romp. It is a mind game and it is a puzzle. A good mystery novel is solidly plotted and fast-paced and it better have characters that we care about. It engages our attention from the first paragraph and carries us at a breakneck pace from beginning to middle and end, to end. It is the only form of fiction in which the writer and the reader are pitted against one another. And I think that's what makes it interesting and challenging for the writer. As a writer of mysteries, you are honor bound to give the reader every clue possible so that he or she may solve the mystery. The reader is working just as hard as you are to, to figure out what you're up to before he or she gets to the end. I think of mystery writers as the magicians of writing. We are the sleight of hand artists, and it requires a great deal of skill and cunning to pull off a mystery novel. So in recruiting your, your talents to this field, I would like to point out that we are in fact the sorcerers. And I think if you are interested in being one of us, there are ways to go about this. I've always regarded the mystery novel as a series of character sketches with the storyline told back to front. In other words, when a murder mystery opens, it is the end of one story. A killing is the end of one story and the beginning of the next. And I always think of a mystery novel as having three layers. There is the story of what really happened, there is the story of what appears to have happened, and there is the sequence of events whereby a detective figures out what the truth is. 
I think it's probably important to talk about where ideas come for the murder mystery because I think they come in many forms. Um, I get many of mine out of my own sick fantasies. Uh, as you probably know, the book A is for Alibi came about because I went through a very nasty divorce and I cooked up this ingenious way of killing my ex-husband and I figured out that I would get caught because I am really quite a law-abiding little bun. So I decided that I would put this vicious killing in a book and get paid for it, which is possibly the best of all possible worlds. I also recognize that we don't generally like to identify with killers. They are not nice people. And therefore, I came up with a detective, a woman detective, whom the reader can identify with so that I could tell my story without making the reader squirm unduly. Um, one of my suspicions about people approaching the murder mystery is that they perhaps get hung up and unnecessarily involved in the notion of the, the method of the killing. Um, I think we spend a lot of unnecessary time worrying about poisons that can't be traced and <coughs> murder methods that can't be detected. Uh, I even read a story once, and I wish I could remember who wrote it, but the, the killer devised a little one-shot pistol that he dismantled and ate. <laughs> but I don't think you need to go that far. Um, again, quoting from Newsweek, there was a, uh, Ed McBain, who writes the 87th Precinct series, which is just wonderful, says, the means of murder were always fairly obvious, and he couldn't imagine why anyone outside of a motion picture cop confronted with exotic and esoteric cases involving rare impossible-to-trace poisons got from pygmy tribes would be overly concerned with what killed a person. Usually you found a guy with a bullet hole in the middle of his forehead, and you figured what killed him was a gun. <laughs> My own experience is that uh, the method of murder should be as simple as possible. For instance, a Sears and Roebuck hammer does not have to be registered. And when you're thinking of murder weapons, it's best to keep them fairly direct and to the point. Uh, with A is for alibi, uh, the murder method there is oleander. And that idea came to me because I had a neighbor. We had a small piece of property that was being rented out. And my neighbor came to me and said she wanted the oleander bush removed because she had two small children. And she said to me, one ounce of oleander ground up in a ton of hay will kill 500 head of cattle. Well, for some reason, that stuck in my devious little brain for probably 10 or 12 years. She also told me the tale of two little children who were playing in the yard with cereal you know, playing house, whatever kids do with cereal. They took oleander leaves and stirred the cereal, pretending that they it was a spoon. By night they were ill, by morning they were dead. And again, this had quite an impact on my psyche in a very nondescript way. I mean, I was not aware that at the time the germ of a book had come to me. Um, however, when I decided to do the mystery novel, this method came back to me and it I hope worked in terms of designing a story. Uh, Kinsey Milhone in A is for Alibi makes some comment about this, the oleander scheme. She says, as methods go, this little oleander number was not half bad. In Santa Teresa, the shrub grows everywhere, sometimes 10 feet tall, with pink or white blossoms and narrow leaves. You wouldn't need to bother with anything so blatant as buying rat poison in a town where there are clearly no rats. 
and you wouldn't have to sport a false mustache when you went into your local hardware store to ask for a garden pest control with no bitter aftertaste. I think what counts with murder more than the method or the how is the why. And I think if you're interested in designing a murder mystery, your first concern should be that of motive. Um, the question is always, why does A murder B? And when I set about finding a hook to hang a story on, that is the first issue. Um, I clip from the newspaper, and I, I know it sounds ordinary, but truly, my first piece of advice to you would be to read your newspaper very carefully, not because the stories therein are immediately adaptable to the mystery novel, but because it will give you such a range of motives. I clip from my paper almost every day. I notice that some days there are wonderful, vicious things to read about, and other days it's just politics. Uh, I do keep a number of files, and I think it's important in part because the newspaper is a resource of considerable importance. Um, for one thing, some poor journalist has gone out often and collected all these devious facts and has put them together for you free of charge. You pay six bucks for your newspaper, and you can get quite a lot of quite valuable information. Uh, recently, I think even the articles about Mengele have been important in terms of understanding how forensic archaeology works. Uh, that sort of thing is worth hanging on to. There was a recent article in the LA Times about how the grand jury is selected and how it functions. This sort of thing might take you a day and a half if you needed to research it on your own. Um, oh, I'm going this way. I have never, never gotten an article, I mean a, an idea for a book from somebody who rushes up to me at a cocktail party claiming to have a good idea, although often I get ideas from talking to other people. Um, so I think you need to keep your ears open. Uh, I think you need to begin to amass information, and I think you do need to do research. When I first decided to do a detective novel, truly there was a little inner voice that said, Grafton, boys do detective novels, girls do not. And part of that was because I felt I had grown up without a body of information that I imagine men are born with. I knew nothing about handguns. I knew nothing about the police force. I don't understand law. And somehow my feeling was that I was quite disadvantaged. So the first book I did took me five years, in part because I stopped and taught myself about forensic medicine and criminal procedure and everything I felt was necessary so that I felt comfortable enough to write. Uh, that seems like a very long time, and it has, in fact, formed my work method because now I am fanatic about research, and I think if you're approaching the mystery novel for the first time, it is something you should be doing also. Uh, when I started the series A is for Alibi, B is for Burglar, blah, 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 uh, I didn't even know very clearly what a private investigator did. So the first thing I did was purchase quite a number of books on that subject. Um, I am now amassing a library that is very helpful to me, including a book on California criminal procedure, California penal code, the California vehicle code. I have books on patrol procedure, 
burglary and theft, fingerprint techniques. Uh, I have, as I mentioned, the pathology of homicide, which is very technical information. But generally now when I get stuck on a problem, I often have the information at my fingertips. In B is for burglary, there was a scene, I mean, it's odd, the things you end up doing research on. There was a scene in which Kinsey Milhone uh, needs to track down a cab driver and I was having trouble writing the scene and I understood finally that it was because I hadn't the faintest idea what a cab company looked like. I didn't know if it looked like taxi on television or NASA space control or what. So I had to call up a local cab company and I went out there and probably spent 10 minutes, no more than that. But it gave me enough visual information that I could go back and write the scene. I think research gives us the authority to speak, and I think it gives us ideas. I think if I ask each of you to take out a pen and pencil, a pen and paper, and, and write down five wonderful ideas for a mystery novel, you would be hard-pressed to do it. If I sent you out to do research on women as killers or the vehicle as a method of homicide, you would very quickly come up with some usable ideas for how to begin a mystery novel. Research also tells us whether a story will work. Uh, there are many times when you come up with what feels like a good idea, and as you do your research, you realize that one element is not going to function for you. In the book I'm doing now, See Us for Corpse, I imagined a scene in a morgue with, one, with those drawers that come out, you know, like we used to see in the old movies. And uh, I began to make some phone calls and began to get feedback indicating that there are no more drawers. So I had to go out and look at some morgues. I went to the morgue at Cottage Hospital, uh, which was probably not very typical of my fantasy of the morgue. So I then went down to Los Angeles to the LA County Morgue, and I went to the USC uh, Morgue there at the USC Medical Center and looked at dead persons. And that single trips gave me so much information. I, I suppose it's like taking pictures with your eyeball. Once you see it, you have a vast body of information that you couldn't get in any other fashion. In that instance, I, it is true, there are no more drawers. And the ways they have for keeping bodies are many and varied, but they don't include drawers. So I have had to rework that piece of my story. Now, certainly, I could have made up a hospital in a made up town in which they did in fact have drawers. But I always feel one should write for the other experts. And I don't like it if a true policeman or a true doctor or a true morgue attendant reads one of my books and finds out I've made a fool of myself. Once I decide what sort of book I will write in terms of a general who did what to whom, I open a file. Now, I currently work on a word processor, which is just a divine device. However, you can certainly use any method available. I think it's important to have a file and to begin to write down everything you know about a story at the moment. Um, it is hard to realize that we all start with nothing, you know, the barest fragment of an idea. And I always generally start a book with panic because I will commit to do a book, and then I sit there with this 
pathetic tiny idea and 300 pieces of blank paper. So I always start out in a state of hysterics, uh, convinced that I can't do it. And by forming a file and writing down everything I know, I begin to let an idea formulate and develop and grow. And I generally find that over a period of time, certain aspects of a story will come to the fore. And in fact, the story will form itself if I give it enough room. Um, for a while when I was doing, one thing I always keep track of too, and this is really fun to do, I keep track of what's happening to me when an idea comes to me. Now, during the writing of Beas for Burglar, I was having migraine headaches, and I kept running in, my file entries always say, migraine headache, I've taken some codeine and some camphor guy, then I get these wonderful ideas, and so now when I'm stumped for an idea, I pray for a migraine, you know, I figure if I can take, if I don't turn into Edgar Allan Poe first, I'm going to be a brilliant at this thing. However, I don't think one can always induce creativity with the use of hard drugs, so I'm not recommending that. Coffee I would recommend. I do wish I understood where ideas come from, because there's nothing better than having one come to you. I would tell you some of mine, but it would screw up the reading of the books. You know, there are certain notions that come to you, and if I told you what they were here, you would know where those books were going. Um, I've discovered that certain ideas work for short stories and certain ideas work for books. Uh, recently, I decided to try a Kinsey Milhone short story. I hauled out, I have a file called Homicide Setups, in which I just clip anything that looks to me like a good setup for a murder. Um, and I came across a little article that couldn't have been more than four inches by four that uh, appeared in the LA Times probably eight months ago about a missing escrow officer and $450,000 that they could not find. And so I opened a file and started playing with that idea, which I determined would probably work better as a short story. As a situation, it just didn't seem to have enough to it that could be developed into the length of a novel. And I brought that file with me. If we run short of time and you want to hear what some of that sounds like, I'll be happy to read you from my own file so you'll know how I talk to myself. Uh, I always play what if. You know, what if A finds out his wife is cheating on him. You know, how would he kill her? What would he do? How would he keep it from being obvious? Um, which doesn't sound very informative now that I say it. I mean, I wish I could tell you how to think deviously. I suspect that we all have a devious streak and that if you would tune into your own hatefulness, you would come up with as many book plots as anybody else. Um, there was a quote from Phyllis Whitney in, a, in an article called Springboard to Suspense Fiction that I found very in, enlightening. She says, the non-writer doesn't understand that a plot is not something that appears full-blown miraculously from nowhere. It is something that grows painstakingly a bit at a time, often through periods of despair and drought. And I realized when I wrote that, read that that I had always pictured Agatha Christie with full-blown plots in her head. I never pictured her chewing on the end of her pencil or lying down with a rag on her head the way I have to do. And yet I think the notion that plotting as hard work is very helpful because you understand that just because it's hard doesn't mean it can't be done. Um, I knew I always had to struggle with plotting. But it helped me to know that somebody of the magnitude of Phyllis Whitney also went through that struggle book after book. Um, there was a quote from Eudora Welty, God bless her, who said, 
every book teaches you the lessons you will need in order to write that one book. And again, I found that very helpful and encouraging that our writing gives us the tools we need to do the writing. She also says that the lessons from one book don't apply to the next, so I don't know how much help it is, but it seemed to me encouraging to think that out of our own material would come the wisdom that we needed in order to complete it. I think it is terribly important once you have started a book, and this applies to any kind of book, not just the mystery, you need to finish it. Uh, by finishing a novel, you have taught yourself one of the most valuable lessons that you can teach yourself, which is that you can get to the end of it. Uh, I know that after writing for 25 years, I'm still never quite convinced I can do it. And yet, having completed eight books or nine books, when I get stuck in the middle, I can always say to myself, God bless it, you did it before, and if you're, you stick to it, you can do it again. Um, it is easy when we get discouraged to set manuscript aside. I think the whole process of writing is one of coming up against your own inadequacies and your own doubts and your own anxieties. And I think it's important not to let that get in the way of completion of a project. I think in that regard, the mystery is probably harder than any other form to complete because it's so filled with pitfalls. But you must complete it. You absolutely must, because then you have the courage to try it again, which will, of course, be necessary. I had done uh, four novels before my first was published. Uh, I started when I was very young. The first book I did was, a, was about the Depression. Now, I was born after the Depression, and I did this book with not one ounce of research, which I would never in my old age tackle. I, when I was 22, I was that arrogant. Uh, I would never do that now. Getting older does teach you to do your homework, if nothing else. There are some books I would recommend, uh, whether if you're getting into detective fiction. Um, one is a basic book on how to write novels, which is wonderful. It's Lawrence Block's book called Writing the Novel. This book is practical, and it's sensible, and it's very amusing, and it's very encouraging. And I, when I met him in uh, Chicago last fall, I told him if I had done the book myself, I would have said exactly what he said. So he said he is glad he had gotten there first, because it's a wonderful book, and if you have an opportunity, do read it. If you're, if you're contemplating a novel for the first time, it is a very wonderful guidebook. When you talk about writing uh, the mystery novel itself, there is a book called Writing Suspense and Mystery Fiction that's published by the Writer Magazine. They also have a new book called Writing Mystery and Crime Fiction. Uh, I've got an article in there called Breaking and Entering, which is about getting into the mystery field. Uh, there's also the Mystery Writer's Handbook, which is published by Writer's Digest. And those give you a lot of basic information about suspense and plotting and pacing and character and story devices and that sort of thing. All of them are made up of a series of essays by writers in the field. So in, in the case of the mystery books, these are not just one person's opinion. You're hearing from the well-known writers throughout. Um, I also like Patricia Highsmith's book called Plotting and Writing Suspense Fiction, which I think is helpful. Uh, once you have an idea and you've begun to develop it, you will need to have an outline. Now, 
I got to thinking today about the distinction between a plot and an outline, and I'm not sure I could tell you what it is. I consider an outline like the blueprint or a diagram for a book that's not yet written. And I think it's necessary, particularly in the mystery, because what you are doing, in essence, is putting together a jigsaw puzzle. As the writer, you must know what the overall picture looks like so that when you break it up and give it to a reader piece by piece, you can give him the pieces of the puzzle in, the, in a controlled order. You need to know what the overview is so that you can parcel it out to a reader in a way that he can't piece together before you want him to. Um, so you need to know where you're going. Now, this is true also in film scripts, television scripts. Uh, you also need to know where you're going in a game of chess, when you're playing the bridge hand, and when you're designing your own career. You have to have a strategy, and I think it's helpful to break it down scene by scene. It gives you a chance to see where the weaknesses in your story are, uh, where your research needs to be done. Um, I find that after I open a file and begin to formulate a story, eventually I get to a point where I need to say, what is the first scene? What is the middle of the book? Where is it going to end? Usually I know what the end scene is. Usually uh, you will find a mystery book will rise to a, an action climax. And I often have those last few scenes in mind. I'm never quite sure how, how I'm going to get there. I can often identify the front end of a book and the back end, and you know, through the middle, you just pray that you can get there. Uh, at the same time, I think you have to be flexible. You can do an outline that's very workable. If you get down to the writing itself and you find it's not functioning as you thought it would, you have to be prepared to jettison that. In Venus for Burglar, originally, the book opened with a burglar having broken into <coughs> Kinsey Melhone's apartment. And at the time, I thought that would be sort of suspenseful and interesting. And so I wrote it. I did 65 pages of that book. And on alternate days, I just loathed it. In between, I was patting myself on the back. But I think you have to listen to that little voice that tells you when you're screwing up. And eventually, the voice kept saying, this is crappy. This is lousy. I just didn't believe my own writing. So for a long time, I got stuck on that book because I honestly, once I jettisoned the 65 pages, I couldn't think what to do. And at, at one point, I thought to myself, well, B can be for burning, or B can be for blackmail, or B can be for anything else I think of. However, my psyche had fixated on this notion of B is for burglar. And Honestly, my psyche said to me, you will do this or you will not write this book. So I was stuck with the story I had come up with, and I could not get my internal writing machine to let me off the hook on that one. Finally, in the dead of night, it's one of those miracles. You know, you wake up and you think, I know how to do it. You know, suddenly I understood how to tell the same story from an entirely different point of view. Dumped the burglar, started, dumped the 65 pages, and started again. Um, if you are contemplating a detective series, you have a slightly different set of problems. Now, I must say, I would never attempt a police procedural. I'd have to do 10 more years of research, and frankly, the detective novel is more to my taste. But there are many people who do police procedurals, and I think when they're done well, they are one of the most admirable forms. I am not also, uh, either a person who is interested in doing the spy novel, but I think for those, I think that's probably a separate set of lessons that have to be learned. If you're setting up a series detective, um, the first book is the easiest and it's also the hardest. In the first book, you're laying out your locale and your prime characters and the tone and the setting. And 
it's fun to do because you're approaching it for the first time. You have to be careful that as the series proceeds, you don't get bored to death with it. Um, having done, laid the groundwork, you need to have some place to go with it. So if you're thinking about a series detective, you have to be careful that you don't make your detective so bizarre or eccentric that you can't sustain it for book after book. And I think it's, it's nice to think of a series detective as someone you're meeting yourself for the first time, so that over a period of time you can get to know your detective better, and the reader can uncover layer after layer. You don't want to shoot your wide too early on. And I think another thing that's important with a series detective is the whole question of tone. Um, we've all read books where the tone, the pitch is set so high in the first few pages that the writer can't sustain. And I think, again, I found when I started my series detective that I was so self-conscious of this, the form itself that I began to vamp. I got silly because I was uncomfortable and unsure of myself, and it took me a long time to give up my own anxiety so I could get down and speak in my voice. Uh, now that I've got to that, I, I still have to look for it once in a while in between books. If I take off too much time, I lose my voice, and I have to go back and read my own writing so I can capture the tone again. Um, I am, I am a real bugaboo on the issue of humor, too. I think while it's wonderful if you have a sense of humor and you can make a book funny, uh, there's nothing more painful to me than reading a book in which the writer thinks he or she is being funny and, and simply subjecting the reader to a lot of pain and suffering. Um, I think probably if you uh, approach the, the mystery as a serious form, and get your story down pat and your characters, then if, if humor creeps up out of the writing, that's all well and good. I think it is a little bit dangerous to start out writing funny, because it's real hard to do, and there are not many people who can do it well. Uh, there, are, there are four suggestions I have for the writing of a book. Uh, I suppose they would apply to shorter forms as well, but I think the novel requires a special kind of commitment that is not quite as necessary for when you're doing a short story. I try to do something on the book every day. Um, some days I fail. Um, but I write from 9 to 11 every morning. And there are days when I am not actually writing. There are days when I am planning. There are days when I'm working on character. There are days when I'm just thinking hard about where I'm going next. But I think it's important to sit down every day, seven days a week, and take a crack at it. Uh, I am a big believer in short-term goals. And I do this, my husband and I write uh, television scripts, and this is a method we worked out. For one thing, with a television script, you have a deadline, and God bless them, there are wonderful devices. Once you know when you want a, a piece completed, we just figure out how many work days we have, we divide the number of work days into the total number of pages, and we know what our page count has to be per day in order to hit the mark. With a novel, I try to do a chapter a week. You now my chapters run 10 or 11 pages, and that does not sound like a lot of work. But there are days when I can do it and days when I can't. Uh, right now I'm two-thirds of the way through CS for Corpse, which is due August 15th, and my tiny heart is pumping right now, wondering if I can get that finished. Even though technically I've got time to do it, Life does interfere, you know, your, your dog dies, and that takes time, you know, and you break your foot, and you have company coming in from out of town. So I, it takes me a year to get a book out altogether. 
Um, so my advice to you is to break it down into small units and make them units that you can cope with. Sometimes that only amounts to one page a day, but if you can do it, you'll begin to train yourself to the regular task of writing. I also thirdly feel that a reward system is nice to have. Uh, in the days when I smoked, I used to reward myself with cigarettes. Now that I'm interested in a long life, uh, you have to think of other things, a phone call to a friend, or you have to let yourself do some mystery reading of your own. But you need small inducements. Now, honestly, every day that I sit down and write, I resist the whole process. So I have had to dangle psychological inducements in front of myself. Sometimes I promise myself lunch out or a glass of wine late in the day. And... Uh, it seems to work, and I think it's a, it's a nice way of enticing yourself through the process. I also find it helpful to do more than one project at a time, because if you get stuck on one project, you can always switch off and try something else, and I think in that way, you can keep your creative juices flowing. Uh, also, after a period of time, instead of having completed one project, you'll find yourself with four things finished, and people will claim you're prolific. Um, if you're interested, uh, let, me, let me read you a little bit uh, from my, my own file. Uh, this is part of a short story that I did. The story itself was 24 pages long. The file on it is 12 pages long, so it'll give you some sense of how you have to convert out from your notes to completed prose. Uh, this file I opened on January 28th of this year. And these are the notes I gave myself. Uh, preparation. Go back and read articles that pertain to the short story and mystery writer's handbook, plotting and writing suspense fiction and suspense and mystery fiction. Ideas under consideration. Now, when I went through my homicide setup file, I came up with two that I thought would work as a short story. One was about the missing escrow officer, and another was an article I had cut out of the Thursday paper where, you know, there's that section where they list collectibles and the things about coins in your family tree. I had cut out an article about the Parker shotgun, which turned out to be a very interesting thing. I cannot figure out how to make that story work to save my neck, but I have a file on the Parker shotgun. I have done research, and I just can't figure out how to make the story fall into place. Maybe next time I get a migraine headache, something wonderful will come to me. This one, uh, I say to myself, uh, escrow officer turns up missing, large, large sums of cash, cash missing also. Escrow company president comes to Kinsey, trying to keep it out of the public eye and away from papers and police. Can she find out what's going on before all hell breaks loose? Kinsey puts up standard objections, but is prevailed upon to take the case. Now, in the process of discussing the, the story itself, I began to play around with the variations on this idea. Some of them are... Um, Let's see, maybe the husband hires Kinsey. The wife is missing. He doesn't know where she is or what's going on, blah, 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 blah. Maybe the vice president stole the money and is trying to put the blame on the missing escrow officer. Then I say, though, that would be the obvious first answer. What are the variations? The variations are the woman actually stole the money and ran off. The woman stole the money, but before she could run off, the husband killed her and took it himself. The woman stole the money, the vice president found out and killed her in a rage, then kept the funds for himself. The vice president stole the money, the woman found out, and the vice president killed her, then set it up so it would look like she were both guilty and gone. 
The woman and the vice president stole the money together and set it up so it would look like the husband did her in. The woman and the husband stole the money and set it up so it would look like the vice president stole it and she found out and then he killed her. Someone else stole the money. Uh, the wife runs off and her disappearance triggers an audit of the books which reveals the missing money stolen by the vice president. The vice president has to find her so he can silence her first. He hires Kinsey to track her down then uses the information to get her. Kinsey figures it out and stops him before he can do the deed. Now, I won't tell you which one I chose. Uh, I find that often the first thing that it comes to me is the dumbest. And so I take my first impulse and I begin to just play with some other possibilities. And even when I come up with what feels like a good answer, I try to see if I can find a way to twist it or turn it and come up with the unexpected. One thing about mystery readers is that they've read everything and they're very sophisticated and uncovering your little tricks and devices. So in order to fool a reader and to do it honorably, you have to be as devious as, as they are, and you have to keep plugging away at it so that you don't take the easy way out. I think I should give you a chance to ask questions here, if you have any. Yeah. This sounds awfully simple, but it frustrates me. I keep running into the term mystery as opposed to suspense and I am not sure what the difference is some books I'm pretty sure they mean this or that but some of them I think it could be either and I really I really don't know especially when you're looking in the, the writer's marketplace and it's a publisher that lists what they take and they say they want mysteries and then it says no suspense yeah. or no oh. suspense but we want mysteries and well this is kind of strange you know that it leaves you wondering her question, in a nutshell, has to do with the distinction between mystery and suspense. Again, I think Phyllis Whitney addresses this problem, her claim being that all writing should involve suspense, and that's the truth. You know, any book you pick up should have enough going for it that you wonder what's going to happen next. I suspect mystery, to my mind, involves murder mysteries. There is something about the detective novel and the mystery that always hangs on a homicide. Uh, a suspense book, uh, I mean, I may not know the answer to that myself. I know, I know that. Okay, oh goody. <laughs> uh, first, I must tell you, I happen to be the crime and suspense critic of the LA Herald Examiner, ah. former <laughs> suspense critic of the Times, so I know whereof I speak because it drives me mad. Yes. Ah. I don't, I... The difference is simple. In suspense, you can know as a reader who is guilty, but the, the characters don't. In mystery, you don't know. Mystery is a puzzle. Thank you. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you.